Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Time on the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Friday, June 25th, 2021. The headline in today's Sun Times, just to give you a sense of what's going on in the world. Alderman to mayor, you're out of order. Alderman Taylor, Taylor demands apology from Bully Lightfoot. And council members chastise mayor for breaking rules of procedure at Wednesday meeting. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Alderman Jeanette Taylor is a guest on the show, but I'm, you can check that interview out at another time. That's not what we're going to talk about today. I just wanted to let you know what was in the headlines today, all right? That's the only reason I do that. Uh, as I do with all distinguished guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So without further ado, drumroll, please. <laughs> distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Sounds good. I love the drumroll. That's very realistic <laughs> sounding. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Ben, my name is Jack Charlier, and I am a lifelong resident of Chicago's northwest side of the city. So shout out to... Jefferson Park, Albany Park, Portage Park, Irving Park, all the parks that are on the northwest side, rock and roll. Um, and uh, I think the two things that fit very well for today's interview, uh, beyond that, of course, is I am a uh, neighborhood organizer. And so I'm trained out of the Saul Linsky School of Organizing. Big shout out to Chicago on that and back of the yards, of course. Uh, and then secondly, in terms of the topic for today, my area of expertise where I work nationally on is in crime reduction. There's actually a field and a body of knowledge called crime reduction. And so I think that fits our topic for today, Ben. Uh, well, well done. Yes, crime reduction is on everybody's mind, particularly those people who are victims of crime. Every day, the papers are filled with stories, horrific tales of uh, shootings and beatings and uh, rising crime rates, carjackings, et cetera. It's become a potent force in politics, uh, sort of the backlash of the deed of fund police movement is occurring in many places in the country. It's an ongoing political topic on the show. Uh, and I'll just sort of uh, put the, the, um, the, bo the borders around this discussion, uh, Jack, by pointing out that in the New York uh, Democratic mayoral primary, Eric Adams is victorious. Eric Adams is a former police officer. He is the president of the Brooklyn Borough. He's a black man. And he ran a very unique campaign saying not only would he uh, uh, crack down on police abuse, 
of black residents because he himself, he said, had been abused by police down through the years. But he was going to be tough on law and order. And he won an overwhelming vote in the black precincts of uh, New York City, something for Democrats to think about as they struggle to figure out a way uh, to deal with crime as a political issue. Let's talk about crime and terms of strategy at reducing crime. Uh, Jack, when you say crime reduction is a whole field of study, it's a whole strategy, what exactly are you talking about? Sure, and it's a great opening question, Ben, so thank you for that. So um, when we think about uh, the average person looking and hearing about, hey, there's something going on related to crime, and we want to know how to stop it, Uh, what we generally uh, hear are people in professions who are uh, in the prosecutorial role, the police role, an elected political role, um, and they have certain ideas and thoughts. But actually, in the United States, we have a whole body and field of research and evaluation and uh, what are called evidence-based practices and understanding of how we actually reduce crime. And there is often quite a bit of gap between what you might hear on the TV um, from uh, uh, folks and what actually is used to uh, uh, cause crime to go down and be reduced. And so it can be very confusing and frustrating for people to see time and time again, people before microphones saying, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and nothing seems to change. Uh, It's what I call the preaching to practice frustration. A lot of preaching on the political front, on the activist front, and that's not criticism against those two roles, but that preaching must then be translated into policy because as dry as that is, policy is what turns government and causes government resources to be allocated, and then policy gets translated into practice. But if you have a disconnect between the preaching, uh, the political pronouncements and the advocacy pronouncements, um, and that doesn't go into some kind of policy that government and its partners can follow, there will be no practice that yields results that actually improves public safety. And so, yes, you could run on a message, and I'm not here, as you know, Ben, to do any kind of political conversation, but you could run on a simultaneous message of, um, you know, we need to uh, uh, do better on reducing crime while also addressing race and equity. They're not uh, incongruous with each other at all. Yeah. But uh, the main thing is, answering your question is, yeah, we actually know quite a bit about crime reduction. A lot of people don't know it. And if you just listen to the pronouncements uh, uh, by folks in the political world, the prosecutorial world and the police world, because those are more at the front of things, you would walk away with kind of misunderstandings at times, at many times of what we actually know about how to reduce crime. All right. Let's talk about that. You talk about evidence based strategies uh, for policies. Uh, that could reduce crime. So give us an example. What is an evidence-based strategy that could be employed today by the city of Chicago to reduce crime? Yep. Uh, I'm going to do this by um, first stepping back a bit to one of the uh, kind of most egregious examples of this in the United States that many people recognize. And then I'll come down to the specific of uh, Chicago. Um, So there was at one time uh, in California, the beginning of what was called the three strikes law, right? The three strikes law, uh, which meant that after the third felony conviction in certain cases, you would go to prison for life, right? Three strikes and you're out. Now, for me as a crime reduction guy who has spent his career ensuring that uh, we have less and fewer uh, victims of crime always, and we want to make neighborhoods safer, three strikes and you're out defied every principle of crime reduction that there is, every piece of evidence. Uh, It was based on the game of baseball. And when you're basing or creating 
crime reduction policy on a game, uh, you know right away, you should know right away that that's not going to work. And yet, in fact, not only did it pass, it grew and now it's done and over with, but it caused tremendous damage. So I'm using that as an example of what happens when the policy and the practice are so disconnected from what we actually know that you get not only bad outcomes, but again, creates this frustration. Now, so I just want to give that as a big picture of a horrible example of something that had nothing to do to tie it into ev any evidence whatsoever that the third time for someone would be some magical number by which they would uh, stop doing crime. Um, and so that's it. Now, specific to where we are today, and this is not just true of Chicago, but many arenas, um, we are aware, for example, that in uh, some communities, and this is a reference to many communities across the United States, uh, drug use uh, has increased, especially during the pandemic. Um, and so while there's a lot of talk of mental health uh, in my field, mental health actually is not related to crime. A lot of people don't know that. And you hear a lot of uh, conversation about that. But mental health is not linked to crime. Drug use is linked to crime. So when we have increases in drug use uh, in communities that are heavily impacted um, uh, by that, we will see naturally an increase in crime reduction or an increase in crime. So a, an evidence-based crime reduction then that you don't hear a lot of talk about is you get at the roots of why it is that people who use drugs do certain things that are linked to that, uh, like uh, property crimes, for example, thefts, robberies, that getting at the root of that, which is the drug use and stopping that drug use is the way that from evidence you actually get to crime reduction. If you take an approach of we're going to arrest this, which has some value at times, don't get me wrong, right? It's complex. You will never actually stop the issues that are attendant with people who use drugs who then go on to do drug-related crimes. So that's an example of moving from what we're here on the surface, uh, crimes are up, um, drug use is up. Okay, fine. If that's the case, then you have to get at the drug use, and that's the approaches that you take that are based on research that when you reduce people's drug use, guess what happens? Because most people don't want to use drugs, guess what happens? The things that they do that are linked to drug use also stop happening and they stay not happening. Whereas if you just do the arrest, and I'm not speaking for or against the rest, that's not the way to hear this, um, you're not getting at anything that's going to provide any intervention that actually stops uh, the crime related to that from occurring. All right. Now, before we get into uh, how do you reduce uh, drug use to bring down a crime that's correlated with that, let me just go back to you, what you open with, uh, three strikes, you're out. Uh, yes, I agree with you. It's uh, based on a baseball metaphor that does not apply, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, to uh, law enforcement. However, I believe that the... Um, the underlying what strategy behind it, if you could, and here I'm going to give defense of this, which I don't even believe in, but I'm going to give it anyway, uh, is that if a person commits three of these types of felonies and is convicted in court of convicting three of these types of felonies, it's evidence that this person will never clean up his or her act. And so the way to reduce crime is to separate that person from society by locking him or her away uh, in a prison where they can no longer commit crime. Uh, that serves two purposes. One, uh, it supposedly reduces crime. And two, it feeds the public's desire to see 
criminals, repeat criminals, get punished and uh, pay a price for their crime. So there's the psychological component of it, and then there is the uh, quote-unquote strategy of you'll reduce crime by locking away criminals, so therefore they cannot uh, do any more crimes. Your response to that rationale for three strikes and you're out. Yeah, so three strikes and you're out on when you think about it on the individual basis. So the individual uh, himself, it's all, I mean, most of the justice system is men in the United States, right? Um, that uh, you could make an argument, correct, Ben, that for that individual, that if they were removed for life from and just put in institutions or removed from general society, um, you can still commit crimes while in prison, by the way. You can attack correctional officers. You can attack inmates. You, you can still hurt people. I want to be clear on that. But yes, you are removed. The problem, though, is um, not that if you could target individuals who committed, what, three murders, three sexual assaults, three arsons, that the law and its absence. So that and I'm not going to get any argument. I'm a I'm a guy who spent his life working uh, to support less crime victims and to make communities safer. But that's not how those uh, that law gets applied. Uh, it gets because if you're doing murder, you're going to be gone already for a long period of time, and you're probably not going to come out and commit another murder, right? That's just what we know about it. Uh, but so that's the first thing. So for the individual on a case of say murder, sexual assault, arson. I wouldn't argue with that. It's just that there aren't very many people who do that. And so the law gets applied to a wide range of people for whom uh, lifetime incarceration for uh, petty theft, which is still a, a crime and still might have a victim. I'm always very clear on that. Um, you know, personal drug use. Um, I guess then if we're up for having, you know, one half of the U.S. population in, incarcerated and the other half not, I guess we can go down that road. I'm not going to support that. Uh, certainly. Uh, but let me uh, back up even from that. Three strikes and you're out is based on a theory uh, called deterrence theory. And deterrence theory in my field is that we as humans look at the punishment for a crime and it deters us from doing that crime. Now, that's the first thing to understand about this, Ben. The second thing is that anytime, for the most part, you hear simple solutions to crime reduction that are short-term, simple, linear, and yet crime is complex and chronic in its behavior, you should run as far away from that as possible. Well, how are those two things I just said linked to what you're saying, Ben? So deterrence theory says, hey, I look at something, I see other people are getting arrested and convicted for this, therefore I don't do it. For um, that to work, which goes back to this idea of simple solutions to chronic complex problems should tell you that there's a, a gap there would mean that I am a person of sound mind and body, how, whatever you want to say it, I am functioning well, everything's going well. And so it might scare me, the idea of being arrested and going to prison might scare me. That's fine. I am probably not the person who's going to commit that crime in the first place is the first challenge to that. So then you have to say, okay, are the people who might commit those types of crimes listening? Probably not, because they're probably not watching news, reading the paper, but let's assume they are. Now we get into what we see often in the justice population in the United States, which is that people have drug use, people have mental health issues, they have trauma, they have uh, or their experiences, experience of homelessness. These things cause our brain to work differently. And in my field, how your brain works matters. It doesn't excuse what you do, but it means the strategies that are appropriate for that do matter. So 
if deterrence worked, the idea that people were afraid of going to prison and that worked across the board, fine, but it doesn't. And we have known that. Deterrence works generally as a general theory for people who have kind of everything in order for you, Ben, to be arrested and put in jail might scare the living daylights out of you and have serious career implications. But it does not have career implications or scare you if you are running in that world of the justice world already. And yet that's who we want deterrence to work for. But it's message for the rest of us. Does that make sense? Right. So we hear the message of, oh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I will give you an example outside the world of street crime uh, to prove your point. And this is me speaking, not Jack. And so the, the views and opinions I'm about to express are, do not necessarily reflect those of Jack, who's doing everything he can to be uh, non-political. But just take a look at Donald John Trump. Deterrence has never stopped Donald John Trump from pushing the envelope on every kind of scam and scheme he can come up with to enrich himself at the benefit, at the... Uh, detriment to other people he did it that's how he got his fortune he'd be uh, borrowing money which he had no intention to pay back uh and then uh forcing the bank to renegotiate you know uh hiring people to do work and then not paying the money and forcing them to renegotiate so if you view deterrence uh as something that would impede somebody or keep them or prevent them from committing a crime uh <laughs> clearly you just need to just study the career of Donald John Trump or Rudy Giuliani, for that matter, over the last 10 years in terms of uh, saying whatever he wants to say. So your point's very well taken. If you have take that, ladies and gentlemen, white collar crime and apply it to the world of uh, street crime. All right. Uh, and by the way, what were you going to say? I cut you off, Jack. What uh, you can say? I say something on that? And even an example that people can relate to even more clearly Again, general deterrence theory is that the mass, vast majority of us will be deterred by something. And we are if, if it's in fact something and we're all doing well and our lives are going well. Red light cameras. You do not need to speed. You don't need to speed. You can slow down. And you get lots and lots of people get tickets and red light cameras. Why? Because the deterrence doesn't work because we're just not concerned by it. So that's another example that might be even more closer to home uh, since most of us have not been the president. Uh, but that just speaks to the point of we have an example all the time of deterrence that does not work. Well, I would argue okay, now we're on a, a tangent with a tangent. Uh, I think people don't see in let's put it this way. When it comes to red light camera, uh, people feel as though the, the law is unnecessary. If you're coming approaching the intersection of Lawrence and Milwaukee, since you say you're on the northwest side, let's just pick that yeah, intersection. I know the intersection. I know and where the two cameras are. Yeah, <laughs> and it's midnight, and there's absolutely nobody on the street, okay? It's midnight. And you go, why should I stop at midnight? There's no one here. And you plow through the light, the intersection, a, a split second after yellow turns to red, just like a boom like that. No car anywhere yeah. near you, Jack. That camera could snap you and fine you, and you'll pay a price. And in your mind, you really will not have violated a law because the law was unnecessary and burdensome. That would be, I'm telling you, that's what goes on in people's, why should I stop? There's no one here. Right. So I don't yeah. even know if deterrence is a thought. Well, that's it. That's the point, is that when we hear simple uh, short-term solutions to complex problems, 
you should run away and say, ooh, I know that that's rhetoric that's never going to actually cause any crime to be reduced. Uh, and so what you're describing is for general deterrence theory, we know for the most part that uh, we can all find ways around it. And that's about it. And yeah, that's the other thing. You're hoping that yeah. the camera doesn't work. And by the way, this proves your point really big time. Red light cameras proves the point. Red light cameras are there to raise money for the city of Chicago. That's they're right. not there to. to That's correct. Not, <laughs> so no, I just uh, use them as an example. Exa- it's a great money. example. Everywhere they're about money. Yeah. yeah. And, and we know, like my field, we know that they're about money. They're not about uh, safety. If they were about safety, they'd have a different construct and different bill. But anyway, All I right. just wanted to bring something in since most of us have not been president. Uh, that's also close to home here. Well, no, but um, I mean, but just. Point, I'm, I'm yeah. talking about Donald Trump as a uh, white uh, collar criminal, in quotes, a legend, you know, and well, absolutely. I'm, I'm talking about no, the absolutely. practices, the behavior of Donald Trump, the businessman throughout his career, violating all the rules and ethics that are supposed to govern business transactions to his advantage. Uh, other people get punished for them. There's rules and laws on the books that deter those behavior. He doesn't care about them. He's gotten away with it. So clearly the deterrence it proves your point. The deterrence theory is not going to work a hundred percent of the time. Not That's right. There's other, there's versions of deterrence theory. Again, going five seconds in the rabbit hole. Uh, that's called general deterrence theory. Then there's also specific deterrence theory, which means you focus those efforts on a specific group and that can work. Um, uh, that can work. But the general theory that most of us hear about is, a politician or a prosecutor, and again, not a criticism of those roles, they're needed, pounds their fist on a table and says, I'm going to set an example. Judges will do this, by the way. I'm going to set an example and sentence you, Ben, to 10 years of prison because you ran a bank and you took all the money from the old ladies who put their savings in there. If that kind of speech were to work, we would have stopped crime a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. It's not a deterrence. It's only a deterrence. Deterrence, we believe, only works for people who are of what I've said earlier, kind of sound mind body functioning. They're not under any pressure. There's no drug use, no mental health. They're not under financial pressures, food pressures. Their life's going well. Yeah, I don't want to do that stuff because I don't want to go to jail. But if you're not in that space, deterrence theory pretty much collapses, at least general deterrence theory. And I don't want to carp on this because we got a lot of other things, but it is the main thing you hear. People pounding their fists and saying, we're going to show this, we're going to make an example. Man, if that would have worked, we would have been done with crime, you know, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> no, I uh, listen. Absolutely. All right, let's move on uh, before I start talking about how aldermen continue to uh, commit crimes, even though uh, other aldermen have gone to jail for it. So deterrence doesn't even work in Chicago. OK, uh, let me move on. Uh, you said something, uh, reduce drug use and you reduce crime. So how do you reduce drug use? Yep. And by the way, drug use is important in the conversation of crime reduction because the United States, which um, uh, consumes about 80% of all drugs in the world, not including alcohol, and alcohol is a drug that causes tremendous damage, by the way, uh, every year. And until the opioid epidemic actually led on deaths uh, caused by alcohol, which far surpassed deaths caused due to overdose. Um, so I want to just say up front, the, the speaking about drugs in my world of crime reduction is important because drugs have an impact on the brain. And people's conduct changes when their brain is um, uh, under the control, if you will, of drugs. So having said that, the way that we get at drug use, actually, we've known for a long time, uh, is through uh, motivating and engaging people to get into drug treatment. 
and which gets people into recovery. And it's a kind of like an unsexy thing, Ben. And so you don't hear a lot of folks talking about it, but there are, including certainly elected officials uh, who talk about the value and need of, we need to ensure that people, first of all, don't start drug use again, because drugs are what are called criminogenic. I'll explain that in a second. It's like deterrence. It's a piece to know. Uh, and then once people start using drugs, that drugs have different criminogenic effects on the brain. So crack cocaine, or what I mean by criminogenic, very quickly. Criminogenic means that there's a link between a certain type of drug and known criminal activities. There is a well-established linkage between drugs and crime. You can't argue your way out of it. It's well-established. We've known it for decades. But different drugs have different criminogenic effects. A crack cocaine, for example, its effect on the brain uh, can be six times as great, for example, as marijuana use. I'm not advocating here for anything around drug use other than to say drug use is related to crime because uh, the nature of what you're thinking and seeing and how your brain operating changes. And when that changes, you will go do things that you never thought you could do or wanted to do. And much of that is criminal in nature. Therefore, to stop drug-related crime, you have to first prevent people from using drugs. And once they start using, you must as rapidly as possible, the two things we know from research is get you into treatment quickly and have you stay engaged in treatment, engages in a length of time, but participating, what they call working the program. That we know. And when people stop using drugs, they get better. And guess what happens when all human beings get better? All the things that you think about other people and what they're doing, it all goes away because their brain is functioning properly again. And that, again, it sounds like we're down the rabbit hole, but it gets at the real work of crime reduction, which is about helping people get well, because most of us as humans don't want to do crime, any color, any background, any income scale. We don't want to do crime. This is not how we want to live. But when you get into that world and it starts multiplying and growing, what we do for crime reduction, we use strategies that get at helping people get well. It is not soft on crime, by the way. It is very hard and a lot of work for people to get well. That's not all my field's about, to be sure. We have enforcement strategies, too, that are needed at times. But it is a big part of it is we know when human beings' needs are met, food, shelter, safety, comfort, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, most people don't do any crime, and they don't want to do crime, and they don't want to live in crime-ridden neighborhoods. So that's kind of a semi-impassioned way of responding to you. All right. Uh, and... Uh... So let me close by uh, getting opening this one up. Uh, if you were a key advisor uh, to Mayor Lori Lightfoot and uh, Police Chief David Brown, what would your advice uh, be to them? Uh, as terms of a strategy, as we head into summer, which is usually when uh, shootings <clears throat> increase, what would your suggestions be to them as strategies that they can employ to reduce the number of shootings, the number of murders, just in general, the number of crime in Chicago? Sure. So the, the number one issue in my field that uh, we see often is that we do not have scale and scope and duration of the known interventions that work to reduce crime. So for example, um, you hear about violence interrupters, right? People go out uh, after a shooting happens, and the idea is that there's some research that shows if um, you get to someone within about 30 minutes or so of a shooting and they were involved in it, 
that that's the space and place where you can interrupt the retaliation or the next shooting. Does that make sense, Ben, the way I'm saying that? Um, and so if that is the, the approach you're taking and that's what you're doing, what we generally don't see in my field is that the scale of that intervention, the scope of it, in other words, the scale is the size, the scope is the breadth of it, and the duration, which means the time of it, is insufficient to produce the effects we all want. So we've got research that shows that violence interruption, when done right, reduces, as a part of an overall strategy, reduces the next shooting. That's its main effect. It doesn't do anything other than that. But if you have, for a city of this size, 100 violence interrupters, all you have to do is some simple math and say, that's probably not enough, especially during the summertime when we know that these types of activities increases, we don't have enough uh, scale and scope. And I will give you a very quick example to put as an analogy. The uh, Chicago Police Department, this is neither for or against them, um, uh, has often between 11 to 13,000 is their headcount, their staffing headcount, right? It goes up and down in terms of officers. A scale scope, an example that people can understand is, what if we cut the police department to 5,000 or increase them to 20,000? You would get a sense of, oh, that's what Jack means by increase the scale or scope is if we went to 5,000, some people might argue, and again, I'm just using these numbers as an example, you might argue that, oh, we don't have enough police officers to get our bang for buck. Or if we went to 20,000, now we've got enough and we can do this. The same is true in my world that we use the same kind of understanding that we will see these very small, well-researched, evidence-based interventions, and they're small, and they're tiny, and they're never scaled to the level at which they can actually make an impact. So the first thing I'd say is you don't have to do anything new. You have to scale up, and this is not about more or less police. I was just using that as an example. You have to scale up the known interventions to the point that you can get, excuse the phrase, the bang for buck proposition from them. So if you can help 10 people not get shot, well, my gosh, help a thousand people not get shot. And that's the main thing that I would say is some of the stuff that's being on is good. It's solid, but you're doing it at such a small scale. It's just not going to have the impact. We won't feel it uh, and know that anything has changed. So your advice, uh, one of the first things you would say is more violence interrupters. Um, that is part. So that is part of it. In the violence reduction space, which is a subset of my field, because there's different subsets, that is part of it. But that only gets at the immediacy of the shooting. There is a whole host and plethora of other things, which, by the way, almost all crime reduction, almost all crime reduction, except for a very small statistical percentage of the human population, which is small, it's single digits, who will commit crime and we don't know why they do it and uh, we won't even know how to stop them, but that's a very small percentage. Almost all crime reduction backs up to a few fairly basic things in our lives that often start early on in our lives and they have to do with basic feelings of safety, basic needs of food and shelter. And when we humans don't feel safe, don't have food, don't feel we have social connections, we, all of us, myself included, would begin to do very bad things to each other. So the antecedents of crime reduction are much more what I care about to actually stop new victims. But at times, especially in shootings, this is why you see the focus on that. We want to stop the next victim like quickly. We need to get there quickly. And that's why violence interrupters work. But they won't do anything beyond that. So the uh, 
initiatives and services that are needed for that very complex problem are not the interrupter. They are very deep, long, and hard work with people who are in that space and their families uh, and the community in which they live being kind of the community they socialize with. Ben, I know I'm going long. I just want to say this again because people will hear this and it will sound like Jack hasn't said a lot. Simple solutions to complex chronic problems do not work in the field of crime reduction and probably nowhere else. And so you're not going to get, hey, violence interrupters will stop this. They have a very specific purpose and that's it. And they won't do anything beyond that. There are many more things that must be built. And it's the frustration of this, right? It's the frustration of what I open up with that people want these things solved right away in the crime world. And I get that and I support it. But rarely does that happen for the reasons that I've uh, laid out today. All right, Jack, um, we could go on and on. We'll probably have to bring you back. Uh, and uh, because we, you're closed by uh, heading into the area, which I generally talk about, which is or sort of like what I always talk, call it about how you spend the money that you have, the programs that you sponsor, yes. the mental health clinics yes. that you keep open, the schools, the after yes. schools, the jobs programs, yes. you know, uh, just everything I've been advocating uh, for all these years and been ignored on. Uh, that's where we're at right now. Uh, Jack, if folks want to get in touch with you or want to hear more uh, about your strategies and theories, uh, what do you suggest they do? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you can just go ahead and give me an email. I don't mind them. I'm, I'm a neighborhood organizer, so my email's out there already. Uh, it's my name, J-A-C. There's no K on it. J-A-C dot Charlier, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-R at gmail.com. That's Jack dot Charlier. Again, no K on the Jack and the Charlier is Charlie with an R at the end at gmail.com. And I do, as a neighborhood organizer, um, uh, not an advocate or activist, a neighborhood organizer, so don't, don't think you know where I'm coming from on anything. Um, uh, I do you know, some work in this space uh, at the very, very local level, and I'm pleased to, as I have now for a long time, uh, had mostly civic and community groups call me on things that they are facing. And we have very specific discussions, Ben, because you have to get very specific in this work. We've been general, obviously but specific to a, a geographical area and what's going on and what does the data look like and things like that. All right. Very good. Uh, I want to thank you very much, Jack, for taking the time to come on the show. That's uh, Jack uh, Charlier. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.